Tonight, I'm going to take you on a trip back in time to Crook County, Oregon. And the setting is the Old West. The year is 1900, which seems a little bit late for the Old West, but we're talking about rural Oregon. There wasn't a car in sight. Everybody got around on horse, perhaps by train. And the sheep and cattle wars were raging. I'm your host, Kingman Bongram, and this is Death Mysteries. Leonidas Duras came to the United States around the year 1870 to make his fortune. He was in his early 20s when he decided to leave his native Greece, so he boarded a boat and came over to the West Coast in search of making a better life for himself. He wasn't the only person from his family to immigrate to this country. Some of his brothers came over and his extended family also made their way to the United States. Leonidas quickly found work as a ranch hand around Prineville, Oregon, which is located in Crook County. And quickly he Americanized himself and adopted the moniker Shorty and changed his last name to Davis from Duras. So he became fully American, adopted our customs, and decided to become a cowboy. Shorty was a very striking man. He was described as being a dwarf from the waist down, but from the waist up, he was described as having a huge head, really big arms, long arms, and he was covered in thick, curly black hair. Shorty was an honorable man. He was known for being very personable, having generous heart and lots of manners. He was very popular in town but he wasn't popular with everybody. He actually fell out of favor with the local cattlemen, and we'll get to that part of the story later on. Shorty worked very hard, and every year he took his pay, which he had saved up, literally spending nothing that he didn't have to, and he bought a few acres here and there. And before you knew it, in the year 1895, when he was middle-aged, he had hundreds and hundreds of acres, and he set out on his own. He no longer needed to work for anybody else. He built himself a couple of barns and a really nice house and became a very profitable sheep rancher. Shorty did not marry, and he had no children, and he was known around town as being very amicable and very popular. He didn't drink. He didn't uh, cause problems with anybody. He was just a really good guy. He actually became sort of a local celebrity. Everybody knew who Shorty was. Shorty and the other sheep ranchers in the area became something of a nuisance to the cattle ranchers. The cattlemen felt that they had been there first and had more rights to the federal grazing land than the sheep herders, and certainly more rights than a newly arrived Greek immigrant. 
And when I say newly arrived, I mean he'd been here for over 20 years at this point. But he wasn't born in Oregon, and he wasn't born in the United States. Yeah, I'm using that kind of accent that is kind of ridiculous because I'm kind of a hillbilly myself. Well, kind of a redneck, but a lovable redneck. At this point in history, anybody could graze federal lands with any amount of sheep or cattle or any other animal without paying grazing fees or rights or getting grazing permits. It was basically a free-for-all. And you can imagine that because of this lack of rules and permits, you had various factions fighting over the limited amount of land. Now, there's a lot of land up there, but I guess the grazing land it comes at a premium, and that's how you make your money. So the cattle ranchers and the sheep ranchers were not getting along at this point. In 1896, a group of cattle ranchers banded together and became sort of a vigilante team. And what they would do is they would ride around the country, and they would hang signs up in trees threatening the sheep ranchers. They would nail notices on the doors of barns threatening the sheep ranchers, and they would burn structures down. And they even went so far as to ride by night with their face covered by mask, and they would find a shepherd's herd, and they would actually stake it out to the morning. And when the shepherd came out, uh, they would tie them up and they would slaughter the sheep in front of this uh, sheep rancher. And this happened over and over again. It was an all-out war, but there still weren't any murders at this point. I gotta admit, this is pretty scary that this group of men were allowed to ride around with impunity and victimize whoever they wanted to, basically destroying property. And at one point, they were said to have killed many tens of thousands of head of sheep by the year 1900. So blood was running in the dry creek beds around Kirk County. I do know as a sheep rancher myself that there is some contention between those who graze cattle and those who graze sheep, mainly because sheep tend to eat grass and other uh, greens all the way down to their roots and tend to kill off grass, whereas cattle, they sort of only eat the top part and the grass grows back a lot more quickly. So if you're a cattle rancher, you're thinking, my animals are not destroying the food source, whereas the sheep ranchers, they're letting their sheep completely decimate the hay and other wild grasses that they're grazing on. So it's thought that the local cattlemen adopted the same tactics as what were known as the Thompson vigilantes, who ran amok in the Ozarks in Nebraska back in the 1880s. And this gang was quickly known as the Sheep Shooters, which is kind of a play on sharpshooters. But so we have this gang of sheep shooters roaming around, killing tens of thousands of sheep, threatening people, perhaps committing other murders that went unnoticed. And I'm sure that they were rough on the Native Americans around there. And as we know, back in the at the turn of last century, Native Americans had a lot less rights than they do today. Um, you know, the civil rights movement was not even a twinkle in America's eye at this point. So who knows how many Native Americans or black people or, you know, uh, basically non-Anglos were murdered by this group. But I'm going to say it was probably more than just poor old Shorty. And we don't even know if Shorty was murdered at this point. So I'm going to tell you a little bit more about this story. 
This story kind of reminds me of that movie Young Guns, but only a little bit. If you'll remember, John Tunstall was the rancher who was murdered by a group of cattlemen who wanted his grazing lands. And Emilio Estevez, who pretended to be Billy the Kid in this movie, Charlie Sheen, who's a rapist, Keith Sutherland, who plays a really good role as uh, accidental president on Netflix right now, Lou Diamond Phillips, who is one of my favorite actors who doesn't get enough roles, and Dormit Mulrooney, you know that guy, who brother, where art thou? Um, anyway, those actors and a couple of other guys, I can't remember their names, they go out and they seek revenge for the murder of their boss by a group of cattlemen. Um, but therein lies the, uh, the, the last of the similarities to this story. Shorty had received a bunch of threats over the years. He had had his sheep shot. He had had his reputation sullied by various scurrilous rumors. Um, There was basically a lot of shadow animosity towards him, but outwardly the community loved him, right? So I'm sure the sheriff was very aware of the situation, and it makes me think that he wasn't willing to do anything about it because he was probably on the cattleman's side. And the cattlemen, the sheep shooters, you know, they kind of remind me of the Ku Klux Klan a bit, uh, not showing their faces, riding around in masks, doing violence. Uh, you know, if you're so if you're so righteous in your position, you shouldn't have to ride by night with a mask on. I mean, what a bunch of fucking pussies. So the story has it that in the year 1900, Shorty went missing and there's a couple of accounts to his disappearance and one of them goes that his neighbors heard his sheep baying and baying much like you did in the very beginning of this podcast and they went to investigate and discovered that the sheep had no food and were very hungry and had been left alone for at least a day or two now it's really hard to tell how long sheep had been left alone because i know my sheep they freak out and make a ruckus every time they haven't had food in just a couple of hours. So we put out grain a few times a day for them and always have hay out for them. And they eat it up really fast. And like I said earlier in the podcast, if there is grass for them to graze on and they are not rotated throughout different pastures, they're going to eat that grass down to the nubs and there will be nothing left but a mud or dust pit. And this is one of the banes of my existence is I need to be able to rotate my pastures just a little bit better. Anyway, that's a side note. So in the year 1900, Shorty goes missing. The other story for him going missing says that some neighbors witnessed him mount his horse. He had nothing but his clothes, his hat, and his gun, and he rode off never to be seen again. Now, both of these are pretty mysterious. There's no, like, he was last seen here. You know, we can track his movements because he was in town doing X, Y, and Z. He last went to the general store and purchased this. Uh, So-and-so had dinner with him. Remember I said he was a bachelor and he lived alone. So the only witnesses to whatever happened to him were likely his sheep and maybe some cows and his horse. There was no wife, no kids, no close family living with him, only neighbors that were pretty far away. At this point in the story, Shorty owned 800 acres, which is a very large piece of property. And even though his neighbors could hear his sheep... I mean, he had thousands of head of sheep at this point, so if they were hungry, they would make noise that you could probably hear for a mile away. Sheep are very loud when they're hungry. 
So when Shorty goes missing in early August 1900, it takes less than a month for the local sheriff to declare him dead. And they put all of his possessions up for auction, including his 800 acres, his barn, all of his sheep, his cattle, and 14,000 pounds of wool that were in a barn getting ready to be shipped out to the East Coast. And that's a lot of money, even in today. I mean, that's a lot of wool, and it was worth a lot of money. So they auctioned off all of his possessions at a reported 15 cents on the dollar. And guess who bought all of this stuff from the sheriff's auction? Probably the cattlemen who were responsible for Shorty's disappearance. It's also interesting to note that Shorty owned all of this stuff outright. He had no debts. He didn't buy anything on time or credit. He was a quite wealthy man at the time. And his next of kin was not notified, or at least there wasn't much of an effort to notify his next of kin. There was a couple of notices posted in the newspaper about his death, but only in local newspapers. And this was a big story locally, but it wasn't picked up by the national papers. I mean, hey, who cares if some Greek shepherd goes missing, right? It's not going to really make the front page of the New York Times. There was, however, a $1,000 reward offered, and this $1,000 reward will come up again and again in this story. And I do find it really curious that Shorty could be declared dead after less than a month and no body had been found. Now, people would go out and look for his body so they could claim this $1,000 reward over the next 100 years. You heard that right. People have been looking for Shorty's remains for over 100 years. And it might even be possible that he died by accident or died of natural causes and his body was never found and that he wasn't murdered by this group of sheep shooters and that nothing else happened to him except for maybe something like a heart attack. But if you ask me, that's pretty unlikely because Shorty was of Greek heritage. He was young and strong. I think he was in his mid-50s when he disappeared. Now, I can't get an exact... Uh, date of birth because they didn't issue birth certificates in Greece in the 1850s. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna guess he was right around 50 to 55 years old when he disappeared, which isn't too young for a heart attack. But we're talking about a very strong, healthy rancher who had no vices. He didn't drink. He didn't smoke. Uh, as far as I know, he didn't have any gonorrhea or syphilis or anything. That He was just kind of an upstanding, healthy dude. And Greeks tend to live a long time. They got that Mediterranean heritage. You know, it's not unusual for them to live into their 80s or 90s. So Shorty probably had a long life ahead of, ahead of him when he disappeared. And Shorty's disappearance was not the end of the sheepshooters' reign of terror. They continued to harass other shepherds in the area. They continued their campaign of terrorism. And in 1903, it is said that over 10,000 sheep were killed in that year alone by this group of vigilantes. And where's the sheriff in all this? Not doing a whole lot, right? Like I said earlier, he's probably complicit in all of this. But after 1906, when public favor started to drift away from the sheep shooters and kind of turn more towards outrage to this lawlessness, we saw the newspapers and we saw the general public opinion shift away from protecting the sheep shooters 
and they actually kind of dwindled off or stopped their activity, stopped their terrorism. Maybe they'd had enough. Uh, maybe they felt like if they continued to shoot all these sheep and disappear people, that eventually the federal government was going to come down on them. And at this point, they had actually succeeded in petitioning the federal government to issue grazing permits and guidelines for grazing on public land. So maybe they had accomplished the goal that they had in mind of getting the sheep off of public lands or at least restricted to certain areas so that they could graze their cattle. So that would leave them with no real reason to go out and terrorize the shepherds anymore. And now we have the first story that comes up as to what might have happened to Shorty Davis. In 1905, a witness at a trial over fraudulent land claims was testifying at the state court in Portland, Oregon. And he put forth a story about Shorty's disappearance when he was talking to the prosecutor and to law enforcement officials during this trial. He claimed that he saw Shorty murdered, basically shot, and then thrown down a dry well on his own property, and that well covered over to hide his remains. And after learning this, the authorities went out to Shorty's old ranch, which was now owned by a new family, and they dug up the well, and they spent a lot of time excavating this area, and there was nothing to be found there. There was no Shorty. There was nothing in this well. It was basically a dead end. And when they went back to this man, who I don't have a name on him because he was a witness in a trial, and they asked him why Shorty's body wasn't where he said it was, he actually admitted that he had made the whole story up and that he'd figured that that was most likely what happened to Shorty in his brain. He thought, hey, Shorty was probably killed and thrown in his own well. And that's as good a guess as anything, and that he figured that if they went out there and his guess was correct and Shorty's body was in the well, he would get the $1,000 reward. But since it wasn't there, his lie was uncovered and exposed, and he never got the 1000 bucks, and he was a public liar. Next, in 1909, a flood and torrential rains exposed some bones in a creek bed just outside of Prineville. And as soon as these bones were found, Charles Colby, who's the only suspect actually named in this entire story, who happened to be Shorty's next-door neighbor, was promptly arrested. Now, apparently suspicion on Charles Colby had been long and pretty, pretty keen. The sheriff had thought that he was responsible for it all along, and... Charles Colby and Shorty did not get along. They had feuded for many years before Shorty's disappearance. So he was arrested, and he was put in jail, and the case was put before the grand jury in Crook County. But they decided not to indict him, and the judge dismissed the, co dismissed the charges because he said there was insufficient evidence to rule that Charles Colby had murdered Shorty. And it even turned out that nobody knew if the bones that had washed out were even shorties, and there was even doubt whether or not they were that of a human being altogether. That's pretty bizarre stuff. Now, I know we didn't have too many forensic anthropologists running around in 1909. Anthropology was sort of a new subject, and 
you know, identification of bones, which is actually what I studied when I was in college. I'm a forensic anthropologist. Some of you don't know that. Maybe if you've listened to me for a while, you do know this. I'm not a practicing forensic anthropologist, but I know my bones. And if somebody like me, or probably just a doctor in general who had taken medical, you know, medical studies and was a practicing doctor, they would have been able to tell you, hey, these are human or they aren't. And it leads me to think that maybe medical care in and around Crook County and Prineville back in 1909 was very poor, to say the least, if you had no doctor there to even identify whether or not these bones were human or not. So the charges are dismissed. Charles Colby goes free. And we never hear anything about Charles Colby after that. You know, he's not exonerated, but he's not guilty. So we move on from there. And it's possible that he was part of this group of sheep shooters, this vigilante group, and maybe even masterminded the murder of Shorty, but we'll never know at this point. So remember how I discussed how Shorty was ruled dead in less than a month, even though there was no body, and all that was put out in local papers was a death notice and a search for the next of kin. It wasn't much of a search. It was more of a notice. And if any next of kin came forward, they would be able to claim the substantial property that was then auctioned off very shortly later. Shortly. Um, So Shorty's next of kin, his two brothers, ended up showing up in 1910, a full 10 years after his mysterious disappearance. And they wanted to take possession of Shorty's assets. But guess what? There were no assets to take possession of because they'd all been auctioned off a decade before, and so there was really nothing left for them to lay claim to. Now, legend has it that Shorty had actually changed his name from Leonidas to Shorty Davis. Uh, Leonidas, uh, I can't even say this. Uh, So Shorty had actually changed his name in an effort to hide from his two brothers. And the legend also says that he had loaned them sums of money when they were younger and never had it paid back. And since he was such a good businessman and he wanted to basically stay away from his good-for-nothing brothers and probably the rest of his family, he had changed his name, moved to Crook County, and had no contact with them. And that's why it was so difficult for them to notify the next akin because he was hiding from them. And they didn't really make an effort anyway. So his brothers came to town, they got nothing, and they moved on. And as far as I know, they didn't really even put any effort forth to find their brother. But that's not the case for all of Shorty's Shorty's family. We will actually talk about another relative later who comes in search of him. So for years and years, people would come to the Prineville area in search of Shorty's bones. And the idea was that they could retrieve this $1,000 reward that was still being held by the sheriff. And nobody was successful. I wonder if that reward is still claimable today. Maybe I will go up to Crook County and investigate and see if I can find Shorty's remains. It'd be kind of cool to come across a half-dwarf, half-giant body, you know, huge arms, huge head, huge torso, and little tiny legs. Uh, maybe in some cowboy boots and a hat in a dry wash somewhere, wearing some really classic Levi's. Um, or maybe he's in somebody else as well. Who knows? Um, 
So people have gone for many years in search of Shorty. They have knocked on the door of his old house, and the new family that owns the house, who's actually had it for the last hundred-something years, uh, they've basically told people, yeah, sure, look around, uh, you know, see if you can find him. But I don't know how well they would take me knocking on their door today. Hey, it's been 121 years. Mind if I poke around your property and look for the bones of Shorty? They'd probably tell me to get lost. At least I would, right? Well, maybe not. I would probably say, sure, look around because I'm into death mysteries. And people have been scouring the surrounding area for any clues. Um, There are a couple of other theories about how Shorty disappeared. Um, But first, in 1950, a skeleton was found during the construction of a nearby bridge, and it turned out not to be Shorty because he'd be really easy to ID, especially in the 1950s with, you know, modern forensics, you know, kind of in their infancy, but still we were a little more sophisticated in 1950 than we were back in 1900, 1909. So it was determined this couldn't be his skeleton because it was not this, uh, you know, Greek god dwarf uh, that was buried underneath where they built this bridge. In 2008, now this is the amazing part, this is one of Shorty's really, you know, awesome relatives, a woman named Anastasia Duras came over from Greece to Prineville to see if she could figure out any clues and uncover what happened to her great uncle, good old Shorty. And she spent some time in town, made some friends, and basically uncovered nothing over you know, the couple of weeks that she stayed there. But that'd be kind of interesting that a, you know, a nice Greek lady would show up and say, hey, I'm investigating the disappearance of my great uncle a hundred and, well, at that point, 108 years beforehand. Um, She'd probably be a celebrity in Prineville because it's still a really small community. And probably everybody, she'd be the talk of town, you know, probably invited over to everybody's house for dinner at night. And, uh, you know, maybe they'd try to make their best, uh, you know, Greek food for, or I don't know. I mean, I like Greek food, but I don't, I don't see the too many Greek restaurants around here. And, uh, she'd probably just want a hamburger anyway. Now, will Shorty ever be found? And that's a big maybe for me. Uh, they could use ground penetrate, yeah, ground penetrating radar. Um, hikers could just stumble upon his bones. And that's one of the things I do when I go out. I'm always looking on roadsides, embankments, and places where somebody might stash a body or where a body might come to rest naturally. And, you know, I don't want to find a body or remains, but I don't not want to find a body or remains. So it's entirely possible that a hiker could discover his bones. And we've seen this a number of times in Death Mysteries, like that ranger who found the skull of that pilot in our Crater Lake episode. He just happened upon it. Uh, This has happened a lot. Now, bones could also be uncovered during a construction project. Prineville is still growing. It's a vast kind of high desert plains area, but there is new construction and people are moving there, even though the population is still small. There could be a, you know, expansion of an interstate. There could be bridges. There could be a Walmart being built and they might find his bones. Who knows? Um, It's doubtful. But a deathbed confession letter could come to light. It could be hidden away in a steamer trunk in somebody's attic. Maybe somebody responsible for Shorty's murder and or disappearance 
may have written something down and hidden away, and it might be found by a relative or somebody else doing an estate sale. That is one possible way that we could figure out what happened to Shorty. Um, another way we could figure it out, maybe this story has been passed down through oral history. Maybe one of those vigilantely, vigilante sheepshooter cattlemen uh, told his son or his grandson, and they kept passing the story down as kind of a deathbed confession or family lore over the years. And maybe one of the members of that family could come forward and say, hey, great-great-grandpappy had this story about how he murdered this uh, Greek shorty guy uh, back 120 years ago. That's another way we could have some more information on this case. But it's unlikely that any modern-day forensics or evidence will play any role in solving this case at, at this point. This is definitely one of the coldest cases I've covered because there's so little to go on. Um, you know, I'd like to think that the ghost of Shorty is out there right now watching over my sheep and possibly watching over shepherds as they're doing their thing, you know, when we're out there, you know, moving our sheep around. Um, I'm getting a new sheep dog pretty soon here. I've got a guardian dog, uh, but I'm going to get a couple of Aussies and I'm going to train them to move my herd around. And that should be pretty fun. I haven't had a puppy in... Gosh, it's been 23 years since I've had a puppy. I've had adult dogs, but I have not had a puppy in 23 years. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm going to get myself an Aussie and uh, train her up and then probably get another one and train him up and have a pair of them. And I'm not going to get litter mates because litter mates get litter mate syndrome. And it's much harder to train two dogs that are the same age than it is to introduce a new puppy to a dog you've already trained that's slightly older, at least for livestock guardian, livestock uh, herding type dogs. Um, so that's a little bit of a, uh, a kind of a tangent for me um, that I'm getting a dog soon. So we're nearing the end of this episode, but during my research, I actually discovered somebody else named Shorty Davis, who is quite the character. I would love to know this guy, and I'm just going to tell you about him real quick. The Shorty Davis of Maryland was accused in 2011 of planting a toilet bomb, and his motives included anti-racism and America's staggering 1.3 million prison inmates. Uh, basically, he planted these, uh, well, he was known for placing porto potties all around Chicago, all around Washington, D.C., where he's from, and all around New York City. And he would take these porto potties and he would plaster them with graffiti and with literature that was about the racist system we have, the criminal justice system, how it's so incredibly biased towards imprisoning black men. And now this Shorty Davis is a black man, and I've seen some pictures of him. He looks really cool. He actually owns a barbecue, uh, a mobile barbecue uh, restaurant, and he goes around Washington, D.C., with his barbecue on the back of his truck, and he cooks food. It's kind of like a food truck, and he gives out food, but he's still doing his protest thing to this day. And so we'll go back to the toilet bombing for just a second. Shorty Davis was accused of planting a toilet bomb. The charges were ultimately dropped, and the bomb, quote-unquote, the bomb, turned out to not be a bomb. It was just a broken cell phone in the toilet. So it seems to me like 
Somebody had it out for him, probably local law enforcement, and they seized any opportunity they could to put this guy in jail. Uh, So he calls himself a protest artist, and Shorty Davis of Maryland, who's still alive today and still doing his thing, uh, ran for governor in Maryland on the Republican ticket back in 2014. And he was ultimately disqualified by the Elections Commission because he didn't have enough signatures to get on the ticket after all. Um, He continues to engage in political activism to this very day. He was actually cited for heckling the mayor of D.C. just last year. uh, And he's known as kind of a local character in and around D.C. Uh, He sounds like my kind of guy. I mean, fight against the system. Uh, call out racism and inequality and, you know, bias of outcome whenever you see it, you know, uh, these are the type of men that we like to see. And I'd like to think that the Shorty Davis of Maryland and the Shorty Davis of Crook County, you know, they had a lot in common or they have a lot in common. They'd probably get along and probably like to sit down and break bread together if they were, you know, could transcend the the barriers of space and time and be in the same place. Um, anyway, that's kind of a weird imaginary thing I'm, I'm going off on there, but just wanted to tell you about the other Shorty Davis. Um, he's the only other Shorty Davis that comes up when you start doing some research on the internet. I did use some articles from newspapers.com and I did read a few other articles and short stories from some Oregon history books for this episode. I really hope you enjoyed listening to this kind of short episode of Death Mysteries. Uh, It was a lot of fun to make this, and it, you know, it made me think, you know, what's my role? How am I going to better rotate my sheep and pasture? I'm glad I don't have to pay grazing rights, but I kind of wish I had a larger area to graze my herd. Um, Gosh, I really hope that there's some closure for Shorty's family, because even today, 120, 121 years later, his family still mourns the loss of their great uncle, and they still wonder what happened to him. And it's unlikely that his murderers will ever be brought to justice because they're likely long dead because this murder happened 121 years ago. Um, You know, I just want to say it's a shame that he was declared dead so quickly and that Shorty, you know, his possessions were swooped on like swooped on by vultures who couldn't wait to take possession and auction off all of his stuff. I mean, that's just disgusting. Uh, Talk about adding insult to injury. Now, this is, of course, assuming that his disappearance was a murder. We actually don't have any hard physical evidence of this. He could have ridden off on his horse, fallen off, hit his head, fallen into a local creek or river and drowned, and he could be somewhere. And it could be a simple accident. Um, But I'm going to go with murder on this one. I'm going to say that the sheep shooters killed him during the range wars of the early 1900s here in Central Oregon. Um, Gosh, thanks for listening. This has been a really fun episode of Death Mysteries, and I'm going to put out another episode next week. It's been a while. I haven't been able to put together an episode in three weeks now. My goal was to put this episode together last week. And the reason I couldn't is I've been working six days a week at the sawmill. And last Saturday night when I was going to record, we actually had some guests over for uh, Morel Pizza. And so we cooked some pizza. We have an Airbnb cottage here. 
on our property. We rent it out if anybody's interested. It's called Littlest Things Guest Cottage. It's on Airbnb. You can come and stay with me. Uh, you can have some morel pizza. We can go out and look for missing people and evidence of crimes together if you really want to. I can show you some local abandoned mines behind my house. Lots of other creepy stuff here in Southern Oregon. Anyway, I just wanted to put a plug in for that, and I am getting ready to make some more videos. Uh, next week, I'm going to have another 30 to 40 minute episode come out uh, dedicated to probably one local crime here. There's actually a couple that I've been looking at that I think are quite fascinating. Um, even if you're not into sheep or livestock and that kind of thing, you got to be into cowboys and American mythology and 121 year old murder. So thanks for listening to Death Mysteries. And I'll see you guys later. Keep your head on a swivel. Situational awareness will keep you from becoming a death mystery.